0: Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road Podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we have a treat. I'm so excited. I really am. We have a special guest with us. And I don't know if y'all know Dr. Reggie Williams. Dr. Reggie Williams wrote an incredible book a few years ago called Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. Wow, yes, that's what I'm talking about. Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. So, you know, there have been lots of books on Bonhoeffer, but quite honestly, when he wrote that book, it became one of the definitive books on Bonhoeffer. He's the assistant professor of Christian ethics at McCormick Theological Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. And we are here today to talk about, hello somebody, black men's magic. Hello.
1: hello. <laughs>
0: He's a brother in the struggle on Freedom Road. He's joined us here on the podcast in order to have a candid, gut level, for real, for real conversation and celebration of the magic of black men. And what I do not mean, and I'll just say this up front, because I know he's thinking it because he's one of those academic-y types. We're not talking about the magical Negro. Okay. So we're not, (laughs) we're not talking that. We're, we're talking about the magic of black men in the world. Okay. So we'd love to hear from you what you think about this topic as well. Tweet me at Lisa S. Harper or tweet Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. Also, let me just say, we see you sharing this podcast and we are so excited for that. Thank you so much, friends. You mean so much to us and we love that you have been so blessed that you want to share the blessing, right? So thanks. Our listening community is growing each month. We really appreciate you and invite your friends, continue to invite your friends on Freedom Road. So this summer, we have been exploring... The Magic of Black and Brown Folk, Black Girl Magic. And last month, we had an amazing conversation on being Latina, Latina women who share their hearts and also their joy and their struggle with us. But this month, I am sitting here about to engage with you all in a conversation with Dr. Reggie Williams about the magic of Black men. So let's just kind of do a little bit of backstory here. Black girl magic was created by Keshawn Thompson in 2013 in order to celebrate the wonder of Black women in the face of stereotypes that overwhelm media and literature. And this applies to Black men, too. So I was just realizing, why don't, we need to extend this conversation. It's not just about Black women. This is about folks of color, how we have been pigeonholed into different groups. And I actually wanted to say that Dr. Willie James Jennings, who I know you know and love well, mm-hmm. right? So he has this theory of the imagination of white men and how they have reduced black men to two two major stereotypes, either the pet or the threat. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So I want to talk with you about the magic of black men because one of the things when you when a black man is freed of having to fall into the imagination, the construct of the imagination of white men, then they can just be men. Mm -hmm. And I think we see that Mm -hmm. in Black Panther. Mm -hmm. And and it's funny because y'all, just before we got on the air, Reggie was telling me that He watches Black Panther once a day. Hello. (laughs) Let me just say that I was like that with Beyonce's Lemonade. I literally listened to Lemonade like for a whole year, pretty much at least one song once a day. Mm -hmm. So what is Black Panther to you? Why is it your touchstone every day?
1: Uh, First, uh, Lisa, thank you for having me on your show. Thank you. Um, I'm thrilled to be here and thrilled to have this time with you. Before I answer your question, I should tell you, one of my students at the seminary learned that I knew you and I was friends with you. And <gasps> my respect level was raised really high Are in the class kidding? in that moment. It's like, whoa, oh he my knows gosh. Lisa. What? Yeah. I feel
0: like that about you. I'm like, I know Reggie Williams. Oh, my
1: gosh. <laughs> <laughs> they were reading the very good gospel and they love it.
0: Oh, that's yeah. wonderful.
1: Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for sharing yeah. that. I also say that I get to be associate professor now. For a year, so. <laughs>
0: oh wow! Oh, <laughs> okay. So yeah. associate professor.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Oh gosh, I'm sorry. I said assistant professor, y'all. Okay, so scratch that. Associate professor. <laughs> uh,
1: it's these things that that you know academic types. After you enter the you PhD know. program, someday down the road, it that matters. You know, it's not that big of a deal, but it's enough, It was enough for me to say something. But <laughs> so the Black Panther. I couldn't initially put my finger on why I was so excited about that movie when yeah. I saw the previews for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I took my students to it. We canceled class in the classroom and we went as a class to oh. the movie. Wow! Along really? with, yeah, along with my so church cool. in, in um, Chicago, Trinity United Church of Christ. Yeah. We bought out a theater or rented a theater, I should say. Of course, we you had did. several screens. Hundreds of people, maybe somewhere in the ballpark of a thousand that week from our church. Oh,
0: my God.
1: My group of students, my group of about 30 students were in that group. But there are several things that go on with this movie for us. Mm-hmm. One is the way that it engages a self-black perception, black images, yeah, black imagery in society in general. What you were saying about Dr. Jennings, well Willie Jennings mm-hmm. was... Something that is just kind of commonplace for black people. You know, the the, the way that black people are you know, basically consumed in a broader public yeah. by white people as props or as substance to really nourish a white imagination of white people. Whoa, okay. So break that down. Who am I? This is the question that T'Challa is asked several times through the movie. Yes. His mother in the fight scene says, Tell him who you, who you are.
0: are. I love that. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes, um, yes. The leader of the border tribe asks Eric Kilmonger when he comes into Wakanda with, with Claw. Yeah. In a bag. Who are you? Uh-huh. At the very end of the movie, a little boy asks T'Challa in, in Oakland, who are you? Huh. There's this constant question. Yeah. And the movie is saying something to us. Who are you? Who are we? Who are we? Yeah. Who are we? Are are we what society says we are? Oh,
0: Lord. Okay.
1: You know, or, or are we what we know of ourselves? Mm-hmm. Do we know who we are? Mm. The movie puts a picture up of an imagined picture of us, but it also plays on some very concrete realities. Mm-hmm. Africa plundered for its resources. Africa, a rich place of resources. Africa, a home of... Kings and queens that go back centuries, millennia, millennia. Yeah. Yeah. That we that we were robbed of. We were robbed and turned into Negroes on boats.
0: You know, wait, can I just say something real quick? I just had this conversation last night. I was talking with somebody and and I said this and like their eyes got really wide. I haven't been across the whole continent of Africa. In fact, most Africans would say I really still haven't been to Africa because the only place I've been is South Africa Mm. and it's so deeply colonized. Mm -hmm. But yet, still, one thing that that I have been impressed by is that on the whole continent of Africa, there really are no black people. Mm. Right. There are no black people in Africa. There are Nigerians, there are Kenyans, there are South Africans, there are... But blackness as a construct
1: was created by white folk. We'll complexify that even a little bit more. Okay. By the, at the time of the slave trade, there was no Africa. Oh! You didn't have that, not even the continent. For the people on the continent, that we, we see as the continent. Now you had different tribal groups. There were no national boundary lines. You had tribal groups. Wow. So it was... even
0: the concept of boundaries, like geographic boundaries and land, that is a Western construct, not
1: African? It comes in a little more history here. When yeah, during the slave trade, starting in the, the 15th century or so, when the when they start taking them across the Atlantic Ocean, you didn't have boundary lines, and they didn't even actually the westerners didn't go into the continent. They relied on local tribesmen.
0: Yeah, okay. that's right.
1: Yeah. Okay, but it's in 1884-85 after the Berlin Conference. Uh huh.
0: That's these right. Western
1: powers carved, um, it, carved it all up. Mm-hmm. That they went into the continent. They carved it up according to the empires who were colonizing those spaces. The national boundaries that we have on the continent today were put there by Westerners. Those were not the boundary lines of the tribesmen, the kingdoms that were there that were Africans. The Ashanti, the, U- the oh. Yoruba, the uh, Songhai, Mali, so forth. Those are those right. different. The faun, all of that. The, those were the, I guess you could say something of the equivalent of, say, French, German, Spanish, so forth. So when people say, right. you know, how could they sell their brothers or sisters into slavery, they don't say that in World War Two. They'll say, how could the how could the Germans have gone after their brothers on the brothers and sisters on the continent when they were shooting for the French, oh, shooting the French? Right. You know, it was yeah. it was something similar to that there with those tribal groups. Huh. But to recognize that we have that as a history. That we are a people from a proud people mm-hmm. who were tribes people who were people of a uh, of uh, of kingdoms
0: and innovative
1: too and innovative. I mean, actually,
0: it wasn't the first civilization was on the continent of Africa yeah. before it was called Africa. Hello, right. somebody. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, I mean, the first university was in Timbuktu, right? And the first cities with aqueducts and huge structures that we now call skyscrapers—that was in Ethiopia, right? Right. So Kush.
1: Right. Yeah. So standing on these shores here, centuries later, for T'Challa's mother to say, tell them who you are, tell them who you are, is to look back in history and to remember those ancestors who knew who they were, Mm -hmm. who because they had the strength to survive over and over again, but they could not have imagined you or me Mm -hmm. because of the crucible that they were in. That you and I would someday be free. We would have access to the things that we have access to, and we could look back to them with gratitude and say, because of you, I can be today. I know who I am. Or I'm unpeeling the layers of white imagination placed upon my body.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: when I say substance for white imagination, say that it's it's really a description of what has happened to the African. So take, for example, the Ashanti. I had the opportunity to lead a course of study in West Africa a couple of mm-hmm. years ago to some of my Doctor of Ministry students. We went to a location, I write about this. We went to a location called The Last Bath. It's a spot where ambushed and kidnapped Africans were finally were bathed before they were sold on that wow. spot or marched to Elmina, big castle. Okay. That bathing site was actually a kind of a ritual. We might even call it a sacred ritual. Wow when they went down into the water they were african they came up black
0: uh-huh.
1: they jesus came up negro oh jesus this moment of bath was a kind of a baptism into a ritual western religion their religion is not the religion based on the one crucified outside of jerusalem no oh. it is the worship of a Western white figure. Everything that happens in this part of the world has been really to underwrite the practices of the empire and colony. Everything, it's politics, it's religion, it's economic structure, it's education. All of that is to undergird that. And by interaction with Africans, the interaction with Africans was also meant to support the sovereignty yeah. of one white figure. So you don't get to know yourself. You only get to know yourself as you relate to that figure. And that is
0: exactly right. right? They named us. They branded us. Like on our very bodies was the symbol of who owned us or, right. or what slave ship we came from.
1: Right. Exactly. I mean,
0: everything.
1: Everything. Wow. Everything. Wow. They... Owned you. They, in effect, they consumed our bodies in order to fortify their sovereignty. In the way that they described us, and mm-hmm. uh, the way that they treat us, and the way that they taught us to interact with our children, or we didn't have our children, I mean, this is what they're doing at the border here in the United right? States right now. It's actually very similar. It's yes. very same kind of thing. Yes, take we are in control of right. not just your body but your progeny everything about you. Of your whole future, your of your future. family's future. Yeah. So how does a black person come to a sense of themselves? How does a cow? black man yeah. come to
0: a sense of himself as a man yeah. having, being under the full control of not never having full control of his own body, dominion, being able to exercise dominion over self. Yeah. I can see why you go back to Black Panther every day. I mm. can see that. Mm -hmm. Can we take it there? Like the black men's struggle, the black man's struggle under the gaze of the white man, the pet or the threat. Right. How do you get to T'Challa from that?
1: Yeah. 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 Well, it's not easy. Okay. I tell you, it's not easy. Now I I speak at my, at the men's conference at my church every year. I'm always teaching the brothers (laughs) and I've been a part of the men's ministry there. In fact, on Saturday, I'll probably play basketball with the brothers in the, annual tournament of course yeah how
0: tall are you by the way you were seem serious tall
1: <laughs> well on the, on the basketball court I gotta round it up um, I'm close to six seven well there you, yeah. <laughs> there you go did you play
0: basketball in high school or college or Both. Oh, okay see and that's what I'm talking season, about right. okay
1: Wow so but the see the I gotta talk about some of the obstacles first okay mm-hmm. and when I mean obstacles I don't mean I don't mean simply white supremacy as something that we face mm-hmm. I'm talking about white supremacy as something that we agree with.
0: Yes, that it, we have been soaking in for yeah. 300, 400 years. Right. And right. so it's a part of us as well.
1: It's part of our DNA. Wow. To get to, I mean, literally part of our DNA. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the way that black women have been treated in this country has been both the location of the physical reproduction and the ideological reproduction of slaves, rape. And black men looking at masculinity in the Western world. Have to recognize that not as the goal, but as the obstacle to our self-understanding. Historically, black men say things. I mean, say, well, wow. see, I think I just got that. It got, literally
0: yeah. just landed. Okay, keep going. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> black men looking at white masculinity and thinking of that as what we need to be. That's right. Yep. Um, as not, as it's as not. It's missing the mark. No, it's missing. That's a distortion. That has been our oppression source of our oppression, not just our oppression, but that has been the mistreatment, the source of mistreatment of our bodies and black women's bodies. Mm. When we come to the realization that you don't need to be the sovereign, you're not supposed to be the authoritarian, the dominant, the dominant one. Mm. We need to find a way to love the community and treat the community as human, as partnership, not as underling yeah. You know, when the brothers say crazy stuff like the reason for the black, the, the fault of the or the the plight of the black family is because women have been in the place of men. You know, what the hell is that's the problem? That's what I say. Usually I say, what the hell is that? Th- that's yeah, the problem. Exactly. That's the problem. You need you think you need to be a sovereign. Mm you need to be an autocrat. You we, don't know yourself. Yes.
0: And actually what I find is that and you see this, I see this in black churches as well. It's not mm-hmm. just, you know, on on the court or in a rap video. It literally permeates our entire community. Mm-hmm. We replicate we replicate the hierarchies of the plantation. Right. In everything we do. Right. We really do. We are some seriously hierarchical people.
1: We are. We are. <laughs> and
0: I mean the boundaries and the power structures mm-hmm. are are solid and all of that and I, and you understand why people need some respect after not getting it for like right. 400 years well how do we break from that
1: to love one another means to empower each other mm. we should practice empowering each other not trying to subject each other to ideas about positions in society that are appropriate for our sex and gender. Mm -hmm.
0: These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Okay, everybody, imagine this. Imagine one bus... 40 women, 3 days, multiple encounters with the diverse stories of our foremothers' struggles to attain, protect, and maintain the right to vote. We're going to travel from Seneca Falls to New York City to Atlantic City and then D.C., and then we're going to spend one full day on Capitol Hill talking to our legislators about the need to protect women's right to vote. The Ruby Woo Pilgrimage is happening again this year, November 4 through 8 on Freedom Road. Space is limited and registration is closing soon, so apply today at freedomroad.us. Let's just jump back into T'Challa. How do you get to be T'Challa? Bring us back into that conversation. Yeah, yeah.
1: To the to, to when they ask the question, tell them who you are. How does yeah. that person know who they are? To describe it. To, That's right. To, to live that. And
0: you were saying you talk with young people. You work with young people.
1: Yeah, and men, and grown men. But yeah, for okay. I, yes, not you mentioned that. for years. I did. I was as a youth pastor, oh. and I had my little discipleship groups and stuff. For so we have several things that are. Before us as obstacles, the not the least of which is understanding our ourself as gendered or sexual beings. Mm-hmm. So man, black man, what does that mean? Yeah. It's the black man. Yeah, that's the question. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, my son, for example, when he was in high, he just graduated high school. Mm-hmm. But with the saggy pants and a kind of talk. Yes. You know. Yes. Is he embodying black masculinity? When we have this conversation, at times I tell him about hmm. the script. Yeah. You know, the okay. Script that you are re- that that you may think of yourself as performing black masculinity, but in fact you are simply reading a script. The script does not come from your ancestors. This script comes from the society that has written in media and in textbooks about you as a threat.
0: Hmm.
1: About hmm. your potential academically,
0: mm-hmm.
1: about your beauty, are you beautiful?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Is it okay to use the word beautiful when in regard in, in regards to masculinity? All of these things. What? Yeah, what do you? Yeah. Where do you find what you understand about yourself as black man? And here again, it have to go back to the way that the ancestors have been consumed in this world. Uh huh get through those layers to some degree of being appropriated for white masculinity.
0: Appropriated for white masculinity. So are you saying that they are taken in By the empire. Mm -hmm. And let me just also, I need to kind of interject this very quickly and then we'll come back. That on a recent pilgrimage that I just came back from about three weeks ago, that explored the control and confinement of African bodies on U.S. soil and the parallel development of the political construct of whiteness. Okay, somebody say that three times fast, right? So. (laughs) Bob Zellner from SNCC came and talked with us about that political construct of whiteness and what he said blew my mind. Cause we went through the Legacy Museum. We went through the, the Peace and Justice Memorial, mm-hmm. um, at, at EJI. And the biggest question for everybody, no matter who they were, was how could people do this? How could people of European descent do this? Mm-hmm. How could, how could you not just hang somebody, but also burn them and castrate, and then hang them. Where does that come from? And what Bob Zellner said is that slavery was war. It actually happened in the context of war. So therefore, everything that comes after that is also war. So I guess what I'm doing is I'm integrating kind of that thought with what you just said in terms of the appropriations, the consumption of blackness in order to elevate the white self, the white male self. Could it be that they've engaged in this war against black bodies, against African people of African descent, in order to fill a void in the white self?
1: To some degree, yeah. I would say that war against black people comes a little later. Okay. There was a huge financial incentive. To go into africa mm-hmm. it, they went to africa not because of race mm-hmm. wendell Berry makes this claim in a book called the hidden wound
0: mm. um and he's right okay
1: not because they not because of race but because they could uh-huh you know with technologies and so forth race becomes the ideology to argue why they did that right okay. yeah but they went and in his book uh, empire of Cotton*, finn becker talks about how absolutely lucrative the slave trade was mm-hmm. that cotton was to the 18th century what oil was to the 19th century it was much cheaper to buy and work to death slaves than to hire labor mm. okay yes so it wasn't war against black people mm. it was financially incentivized anthropology that's what race was. The anthropology is the ideology that undergird the economic practices. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they did that because it made them rich, not because of war against black people, but after emancipation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now what? You got four million Negroes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, you yes. got four million Negroes, and they in w- during slavery, black people were the support structures for ritually pure white space. Okay, now we're getting it. Okay. You get that? Yes. Okay. There were support structures for white space. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now you've got these Negroes roaming the countryside free. What happens to your pure white space? You no longer have pillars to hold it up. You don't? No. not Negro financial systems are in peril. They are scared to death. <sighs> In 1933, Sterling Brown wrote an essay called "The Negro as Seen by White Authors." This is not the actor for the from "This Is Us," as parents named him. <laughs> um, he's so great, though. <laughs> he's great. He's great. Everybody always makes us cry. Yeah. But this is Sterling Brown, who was uh, a professor of English lit at Howard University. Here, he, was, he wrote an essay called "The Negro as Seen by White Authors," and he yeah, has like seven tropes there. The mm-hmm. contented slave was one of them. Mm-hmm. Wretched free man. This is a black person who goes up north and finds that they can't live outside of the care of the benevolent sovereign they have to be back under the care of white people wow. and the song dixie is him singing really you know that you know the, the word look, wait, look, away, look, look, away, look away look away <wilurthene noise> look away that's the wretched freeman singing that singing that song look away longing to be back in dixie wow because he can't live in freedom it's not made for freedom
0: i did not know that yeah, I just, I just learned something.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then wow. um, the, the 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 comic Negro is another one, which is black person who tries to dress like a white man, yeah. white people, like white women, tries to use big words, but the way that the way that they that he dresses and the um, and here I say he because we're talking about masculinity now mm-hmm. again we, the way that he dresses and the way that he speaks just is, sounds foolish and it's yeah. funny, it's hilarious. The brute Negro. This is black people after emancipation. Roam in the countryside. Guard your white women.
0: Right. That's right. Because they're
1: savages. They revert back to their natural savage tendencies after out from under the care of the benevolent sovereign. All of these characters. And this is, again, to say undergirding white identity. All of these characters come from the imagination of white people. Yeah, they are not real people. They're not real. They're not real. They're not they're not real. They're not black people. They are imagined people. If they if I to say black people, they're black people. They're phantoms in the imagination of a white watching public.
0: But can I just say yeah. that I I and I think you I don't know if you're going there, going here, but Is it also true, though, that in order to succeed within a society that is governed by the white imagination, that there have been people of African descent who have performed those roles and perfected those roles? Burt Williams. Yes, exactly. In order to and have then succeeded and reinforced that perception of Blackness and black maleness. Mm-hmm. So, who is Burt Williams We're going to bring that out? Who is that?
1: Yeah, Burt Williams, one of the most prominent minstrel figures in society in in history. Mm-hmm. It's actually from Jamaica. He was born in Jamaica. Wow. I think he was accepted at, or didn't he? Or maybe he didn't get into Stanford. Instead, went to another very prominent school. He was not that figure, the comic Negro, the the, the laughable one. Who was bl- in blackface yeah. so f- and so forth, and shuffle along and so on. He perfected the diction. He perfected the walk because this is what was popular for white people in these shows. This was the minstrel. Yeah. Show, yeah. Right? What the minstrel figure, like the sleeping, sleeping. Eat, was another character, but um, like Sleep and Eat, like Burt Williams, like the comic Negro, this is who they represent, uh. or even the Brute Negro, or the Wretched Free Man, these are. Almost human figures always missing something that is present in white people. This is the construct. And they're paraded before a broad public to show that white people have that. Right. The white, white men have these things. Black men and women don't have these things. And these, all of these different character, tra- all uh. made up characters are meant to demonstrate that.
0: The, they're meant to demonstrate the full humanity of, whiteness. of white
1: people yes. and the and the lack of full humanity in black people. That's what I mean by consumed by a white watching public. Yeah. So you are never really seen. You're never really seen. You're, you, they don't they, they have an encounter with you, but it's only as projected from their imagination. They don't have an encounter with you.
0: Does this happen today?
1: It happens today all the time.
0: Let's talk Obama. Okay. Because I think that's a really great example of it, right? Like, Obama is a black man. Like he's like he is not. He is T'Challa. Like literally on American soil, he's biracial. So we cannot, you know, we cannot forget that. But in the white imagination in America, he was a brute. He was all of those things. He was um, an imbecile. He was he was he was less than human. That's where you
1: go. That's where you go. Yeah. Because they knew who he was. Yeah. And they will label him in that way. They slap the label on him. They know who he was, yeah. not fit for that office, does not belong here, not born in the United States, right. blah, 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 blah. All of these things that were, that were only figures alive in their mind, mm-hmm. they slap on top of him and dismiss him.
0: And it's because of what's in their imagination that has nothing to do with who he actually is, his actual accomplishments, what he's actually doing in the world, because they can't see it.
1: Yep. Because and they, they refuse to see him.
0: And also because they've been trained for mm-hmm. four hundred years right. to see the black man as only something that exists to prop up the self. Yeah. Their white self.
1: Yeah. You now, must serve the empire.
0: Who are the black men that inspire you? The ones we know T'Challa does this, right? Yeah. But the other ones who have actually been able to grasp what it means to be a black man, who you go back to as a touchstone yeah. daily.
1: Well, this one, um, this is a hard question for me because I never met my father. Oh, this my was, gosh. Yeah, I never met him. I have two beautiful sisters from yeah. him, but I never met him. My stepfather was not the greatest person at all. In fact, I am who I am in spite of that upbringing. Yeah, uh, so, it's been a challenge for me to, in, in growing up, it's, it's been a challenge for me to find people who could help me be me. Yeah. There are, have been a few. So, my first mentor was a basketball player, a pastor at a church in Stockton, California. Oh, wow. Tim Dunham. Uh-huh. And then another pastor at a church in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. He's passed away from prostate cancer, Paul Fortier. Hmm. He died before my son was born. Mm-hmm. Um, who's 18 now. Oh, wow. My son. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. There is a a very strong presence for me, although I didn't get to see him very much. And it just happened by complete accident. But he's mm-hmm. a deacon at a church, in a deacon at Abyssinian Baptist Church, Charlie Smalls. Oh. And I, I'm going to send this to Charlie so he knows that.
0: Oh, that's so great. Charlie, yeah. we love you and we love thank you.
1: you. And they're my family, Char- Charlie and Cecilia, my family in, in Harlem. Um, mm-hmm. he, he keeps, he, he calls himself Uncle Charlie to me. He's been more like Papa Charlie. Oh. Uh, and then, you know, several other people from different church, from, the, from my church. I'm always watching. Since I was a kid, I was watching mm-hmm. to emulate. It's just, that's also a call to men to pay close attention to how you love people around you. Because mm-hmm. kids like me were watching. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How you treat women this is one of the things that I saw at um, I guess it's been with me for years but when I was uh in high school and I made up a reason to call this pastor because I wanted to go back to church I was 17 mm-hmm. I want to go back to church my home life was kind of was crazy I didn't turn towards these other Problematic things that I could have turned towards mm-hmm. in this very strange way I turned towards church. I was 17. Wow. And I made up an excuse to call, hoping they do invite me to church. Oh my God. Um and so I started going to this Baptist church, small Baptist church, but I must say that I knew something wasn't right. Okay. In the, in the way that they talked about women. Interesting.
0: Wait, this is a black church? Yes. And so the way that they talked about women.
1: You did not impress me as 17.
0: OK, so let's talk about that.
1: Women could not walk behind the pulpit, could not be up on the pulpit, could not walk behind the pulpit. Women must recognize when they're talking to a man that they're talking to a man. Oh, gosh. I was a boy at 17 years old, but there was still grown grown women saying that this is a man. And they talk uh, talk to me in a different kind of way. Mm hmm. Women could speak on the pulpit that was down below the podium, but they couldn't speak up on the speak behind the podium there. I was 17 years old. I knew that was wrong. I love my mother. Yeah. Okay. I got a mother and I got sisters. And if I may be frank, ain't no damn way. (laughs) I would allow anybody to talk to my mother in that way. Yeah. Or to encourage my mother that she had to keep her in her space.
0: In her place.
1: In her place. So being a man has to be different than that.
0: Yeah. See, that's that plantation thinking. Yeah. It really is. It's the claiming of the space of the master. Mm -hmm. And then the master gets to basically rule rule the universe. So, and women, black women always
1: come up. Stay in their place. We have to stay in our place. We got to be better than that. Yeah. If you're going to get out from under the practices of domination that have enslaved us and subjected us for hundreds of years, you can't try to imitate the sovereign. you got to be better than that.
0: I mean, I think that theologically, doesn't it come down to the image of God? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, for me, it comes down to the reality that. Every single human being, if you are human, mm-hmm. then you are created to exercise dominion in the world. Yeah. And that includes women. And when, the, when we, whenever we limit the capacity of any people group, whether it be women or people of African descent or people of color to exercise dominion, then we ourselves are oppressing the image of God on earth. Right. So isn't it weird that we can be oppressed, African, people of African descent, mm-hmm. Um, and male, and yet also be an oppressor of mm-hmm. the image of God on earth in women of African descent.
1: Because they don't see dominion as shared governance. Yes. They see dominion as domination. Ooh. And it's the man who was given that role.
0: Yes. Now, is that a Western construct or is that, was that, does that go back to Africa or is that just, uh, you know, sin? Is this just something that's in the human experience. I mean, it's certainly, it's in the Bible, right? Like it's certainly post-fall we see it chapter three, like, and sure. it, you
1: know, is probably now I couldn't speak for much broader constructs besides the Western world, but I'm sure that it is something that is complementarianism that the woman has her place and the man has her place is broader than the United States broader than the West, very, mm-hmm. probably very African as well. But we can't separate it from the practices of domination that have given us our current understandings of each other as racialized and gendered people. That is white supremacy. We can't extract it from that and say, "Well, this is this and this is that. So, it's, everybody does this. When you put everything together, those all of those ingredients together, your cake is different than that one over there, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so uh. you can't. So it's it is your unique thing uh-huh. here that black people and black men in particular imitate. Hmm. So uh, by negation here, let's say we can't do that. This domination thing, black masculinity must not be that. So what what does it mean? What does the masculine mean? Yeah. If it's not what masculinity has been structured to be in a white racist world. What is black would be, which would be completely different, completely other than that black masculinity. It must be something that recognizes the humanity of our sisters and loves them in a way that is Mm. that loves them differently Mm. than this dominating authoritarian. This distorting world has not allowed them to be loved. When I don't love my sister, I don't love myself.
0: Yes. So, I have another question. I was actually going to save this for the end, but I'm not going to because this is the perfect time to ask it. So, when you, as a father, mm-hmm. do you have a daughter? I do. You have a daughter. So, I know as a black woman that how a father fathers his daughter mm-hmm. really means something. Mm-hmm. It is, it's probably one of the most deeply impactful things mm-hmm. that a black man can do mm-hmm. is to father a daughter. Mm-hmm. in a a woman's life really is one of the most important things because it impacts the way that she then sees herself in relationship to men Mm -hmm. so I guess what my question is what does it look like to be what does black men's magic Mm -hmm. look like when fathering girls when fathering Mm -hmm. daughters
1: don't let anybody put her in her place empower her to be able to stand on her own two feet when somebody tries as best as I can. I'll tell you this quick story about her. She swears this conversation didn't happen, but I remember it. (laughs) Okay. She was in maybe the third grade, second grade. I was in my chair. We had a two-bedroom apartment in student housing, working on something. And she came and she sat in front of me, leaned back against the couch, the back of the couch. My chair was in a corner behind the couch. She told me about cheerleading. Mm -hmm. She knows her dad is a basketball player. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: She told me she wanted to be a cheerleader. And I thought to myself, now you're going to have, you're going to have some arms because dad has arms. You can have some height. Um, You've got some speed. No, I would prefer you not to be sitting on the sidelines, cheering for the athletes. You're an athlete. I would prefer you be on. And now, now somebody might say you told her what to do, but um, (laughs) in that moment, yeah more than telling her what to do I'm combating something that says for her what she should be as a woman
0: yes that's right no that's right
1: this the is one, what I'm, yeah
0: the one who exists in order to be the support in yeah. the same way that blackness is a support for whiteness yeah. woman this is a support for maleness yep oh
1: yep okay structures their place as the front and the lead always it supports that place wow. that that practice you know what? You got you. You need to be on the court, my beautiful little girl.
0: I love that. You need
1: to be on the court. I
0: love that. You told her. You told her who she is.
1: Mm-hmm. You come from some ability to do some stuff, you know. And yeah. don't let anybody limit that. She swears today that that conversation didn't happen, but it happened just as I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> just as I'm telling. And and so from from her childhood. By saying that, I wanted her to look at both of her parents, yeah, as people to emulate, not just her mother, but when you're looking at you you're looking at your father, I hope to model for you a loving person who who has some of the gifts that you do as well, mm-hmm. and to go beyond me, you know into the person that God has made you to be. that's my my baby.
0: Amen yeah. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progresses, Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and AmericanProgress.org. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. There's a hashtag that's flying around Twitter right now. I don't know if you've actually seen it, but it's black men smiling, Mm. right? So black men are posting pictures of themselves Mm -hmm. smiling and using this hashtag. And it's honestly, I found it really profound. I was, I was looking through and they are the ones posting and, It feels in many ways revolutionary and Mm -hmm. subversive at the same time. Mm -hmm. These images of black men with teeth showing, and it's something that I realize I don't see very Mm -hmm. much. I think it has to do with the breaking through those stereotypes we saw before. Mm -hmm. The brute, the step and fetch it, the all Mm -hmm. of those. There's something about a smile that humanizes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why do you think, why do you think the black men smiling has taken off so much. And what do you think it's, why do you think it's, it feels so
1: subversive? I haven't seen the hashtag. You have um, to take it um, off. No, take a look. I'll take a look. Now that you ask that, I will, I will certainly take a look. Um, so place that next to the very prominently known um, epidemic of black men being shot by cops. Yes place black men smiling next to that the argument stand your ground argument for shooting black men is oftentimes that we are a threat right we are dangerous right that's the brute negro the that's that trope yeah i mean tamir black men don't even get to have a childhood but what if black men aren't just angry brutes yeah Yeah. We know we're not.
0: Or like who's the the cop said about Michael Brown. It
1: looked like a demon. Yes. The demon smile. Well,
0: Uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: There's probably there are some demons smiling at the person who shot Michael Brown. Hello. Yeah. Anyway, It's,
0: it's, it's the humanity. It's actually bringing out the humanity of the person. Yeah, there's there's something about the spirit of God that comes through in a smile. There's a connection there. Yeah. All of that. There's also
1: another level to that. So Bell Hooks has written a book called We Real Cool huh? about black masculinity. I have to pick that up. Yeah. Yeah. She really hit on something in that text by talking about black men as the inventors of cool. Well, that is kind of true. <laughs> yeah, we cool. Yeah. It's true. The yeah. hats and the, ooh, yeah. yes. always and, and <laughs> folks want to be like us all around the world. It's true. But what is cool? What is, what is, what is, it, that, what is it that black men invented that's cool, that uh-huh. we may describe as cool? Cool says that no matter the difficulty that I'm facing, it don't get to me. I'm cool. No matter the struggle, the toil, no matter the heartache, it don't touch me i hide the struggle i hide the pain behind a veneer that says it can't touch me wow so my feelings are alien to me even as i struggle through the most through the right. the heat of the day and so forth my feelings are alien to me I, I alienate myself from my feelings what if i didn't alienate myself from my feelings but i felt them yeah. you know what what if I gave myself permission to enjoy life and smile in front of you.
0: Okay, so I have another question. Yeah. You earned your PhD at Fuller. Yes. And in 2011, and recently the hashtag SeminaryWhileBlack... kind of took off. and I have to say, I, I, along with many other people watched the, the, the baccalaureate Mm -hmm. where inaction was done. I watched it on Facebook live, just happened to, you know, chime in when this was happening. And it left me in tears because Mm -hmm. I think there's something, there's something happening at Fuller right now where the black students, the the students of African descent are rising up and saying no more. Mm -hmm. And, and they're, they're saying no more, but what's at the heart of that pain? What's at the heart of the demand that students are making and, you know, that's causing them to raise their voices at Fuller Seminary? Is this just Fuller or is this actually a larger problem?
1: Well, going backwards in Mm -hmm. your questions from that, from that most recent one and then going backwards, no, this is not just Fuller. This is really uh, the shape of quite a large segment of the Theological Academy today. Okay, let's talk. That to get educated in seminary or, or divinity schools is to become conversant in the classics, which are white folks, very white, very white. And so mm-hmm. students come, like me, for example, coming through th- th- through Fuller. Mm-hmm. I had one African American professor in the entirety of my theological studies, J- Reverend Doctor J Alfred Smith, Senior, and he was an adjunct.
0: Oh, oh, that just hurts. It hurts it does. me. It hurts my body. How could that? Oh, my God. Wait, how could that be when we are studying a scripture where there is only one white person in all of scripture? Mm -hmm. Mm Pilot. Pilot's the only white guy Mm -hmm. in the entirety of the Mm -hmm. whole Bible. Think about that Mm -hmm. for a minute. And yet you could go through getting your MDiv, your PhD, Mm -hmm. and only have one adjunct person I don't know if it's person of color but certainly person of African descent in yeah. your teaching in your when we teaching we say persons of
1: color I that make it two because I had oh a, a biblical studies professor who was two Chinese Two
0: people of color Carwan. Yeah Okay so how how could that be and now I get it you don't need to say that and it's like okay I get that So what's the impact of that? And what's the struggle as a black person in seminary then? How do you how do you study the scripture?
1: Yeah. You do it as a colonized subject. That's how you study scripture. You Mm -hmm. study theology as somebody who who is um, your very Mm self-awareness has hijacked. Wow. So, um, yeah. So this is. When everything this is what James Cone when he came out of Garrett in uh, Northwestern mm-hmm. tried to take what he he I know he had my I know he had my experience mm-hmm. my experience as a black person in a very white academy mm-hmm. I'm not going to try and put myself next to Dr Cone um, <laughs> uh, but, not, but but in a, as a as a as a black person in a white yeah. academy take his dissertation on Barth's anthropology back to his A M E church and teach our people yeah though what the questions that they're asking and they're responding to have nothing to do with our existence it cannot speak to a black existence it doesn't see a black existence yeah you, you, learning that, I mean, in the midst of the black power struggle, take that back to your church and it does not speak to our existence or our experience. You gotta say something different. So, what we end up doing then is throwing out that a uh, theological education and trying to make up something in the moment, which is what, which comes, which he, he which um, was the, what actually happened with black right. power. Right. His, his text, uh, the, um, by uh-huh. theology, black power. Yeah. So for me, coming through a white theological academy. Wait,
0: can I just say, can we just you just said you throw out a lot of money, quite honestly, because you're paying a lot of money to get that education Yeah. and you have to get that education in order to be deemed approved by the academy Mm -hmm. to have any kind of a career there. But you actually have to throw it out and then start from scratch in order to actually be able to speak to your own experience. Yeah. Can I just say that's kind of deep?
1: Yeah. It's okay. a problem.
0: So keep going. I'm sorry.
1: Yeah. So what I have to do after the academy in the communities that form me, where I gain a clearer sense of my under, of my identity as a black person. Yeah. Not within those white spaces. You can't come to know yourself there. When you go into black spaces where I can get a better sense of who I am as a human being. hmm I have to do something different. Okay. That's what those students are asking for Fuller to do. Mm. Do something different than you've done historically. Mm. You got to do it differently. You can't keep repeating this. And at a time when the nation is doubling down again on white nationalism and these students go into the classroom and they hear the same kind of rhetoric.
0: That's right.
1: They need to have something different. They want, we want, we want you to be Christian. That's what they're asking.
0: We want you to restructure the way that theology is done. In other words, we want you to participate in decolonization of theology.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, yeah I that's said, kind yeah. of a,
0: that's a, that's a tall order for some white folk.
1: It is. Because I, yeah. It okay.
0: means, it means giving up power for them.
1: Right. So when I say be Christian, let me qualify that. Yeah. Because it was in fact Christian when they went and kidnapped Africans. That was Christian move. Okay. That was Chris. That was, that was the gospel colonized. Okay. And the, and the God of that Christianity was a white man. And then in, in a lot of our theological institutions are set up to structure the worship of white men and not actually the, the God of Christ crucified outside of Jerusalem. Yeah. And I mean, to take that one step further, as Cohn says in the cross and the lynching tree, yeah. the representative of white Christianity in the United States has historically not been the body of the crucified Savior outside of Jerusalem, but black bodies on the cross in the ritual cleansing of white space. Mm. So black bodies then are contagions. They're threats to white space and wiping them away is the ritual cleansing that represents the Christianity of the, the that is espoused there? So I mean, that's a, that's a deeper thing to say. If I get you, it, but if you take the study of theology with Christianity in that context, what does that do to Black people who are learning about God? Mm-hmm. It, it, it trains. It ends up training us in a kind of a invisibility dislike of self you know reinforcing all of, the, all of reinforcing that. all of that stuff so so um, that's what's toxic about theological education if you that's don't have I mean. a yeah if, if, if theological education can be harmful if you don't if if it's not giving you a better way to love you which will enable you to love your neighbor and love god you know you got to let to I mean the commandment that uh, the lawyer asked the commandment the lawyer asked Jesus You know, Mm -hmm. what does the Bible ask? What does the Lord require of me in Luke chapter 10? Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, how do you read your Bible? Basically, you know, what does the scripture tell you? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. To love your neighbor, you got to be able to have a sense of yourself. Mm. Do I get that in seminary? Can I get that in seminary training? Can seminary training enable me to love my neighbor it can't help me love my neighbor, my black neighbor, as a black person or a person of color, if all that I'm taught mm. is to love white people and to worship white people, to, to, um, to learn only from white people, that the representative of people who have contributed to theological education are all only white people. You don't have a mind. You don't have any theology that contributes to this conversation. There's nobody that looks like you that's ever contributed to this conversation. What, what does that train? How does it that? What does it give to people of color for an understanding of themselves? It's not true, first of all. Hello. It's not true. That's right. That's right. Um, so and if your professors cannot find representatives of your community speaking in that language, then your professors have problems. And that's what the that's what those um, not just at, at Fuller, but it, across the, in, in a number of places in the country right now, mm. theological education. Mm. Mainline churches are shrinking, and they are sending less and less students to seminary.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm.
1: a lot of black churches are not shrinking, and some of these schools are becoming browner. They're facing these institutions with questions that pr- that come from their uh, communities. Yes, while the institutions are threatened. Their traditions are threatened. Yeah. Are these students forcing us to abandon our traditions if they ask us to address these issues that come from their communities and to speak in a language that's relevant to them?
0: Is it possible for us to actually see another way of being together in the academy? Is it possible for us to even begin to vision for a new way of of accrediting, of actually finding approval is there a way and not just finding approval of of accountability that's really what it's about it's accountability to a rigorous pursuit of truth and particularly biblical truth in the in the, in the seminary context but i think that what's so what's so interesting about this and what's so sad about it is that there's only been one way of I'm imagining and it's been crafted by folks of european descent of what That accreditation, accountability relationship looks like. But what you have is you have a river of people of color who are coming in and saying, but you're not accountable to us. Right. You have been unaccountable to the majority of the world. Right. And to the reality of history Mm -hmm. and to the reality of what the actual scripture actually says Mm -hmm. in terms of its context, its, its political context, its geographical context. You've been unaccountable Mm -hmm. to all of this. Mm -hmm. So could the reimagining of the academy be an expansion of accountability Mm -hmm. or maybe even a shifting, Mm -hmm. a shifting? of accountability to what is true mm-hmm. and that includes all of us
1: mm-hmm. amen amen
0: the conversations leaders have on the road to justice this is the freedom road podcast <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. And um, this episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Um, Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, we coach, we train, we design experiences that bring common understanding, y'all. That's why we had this conversation today. And also common commitment and leads to common action. And you can find out more about us from our work on our website at freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for the updates that you can actually do right when you log on. And we promise we will not flood your inboxes. We invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first of every month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.